the Jewish views on Yom Ha'atzma'ut, just what does it mean to diaspora Jews? This is How We Talk. Author Julian Furman talks about his new novel set in Tel Aviv. Morgan David Adam, find out how British Jews have helped save thousands of Israeli lives and stem cell donation. David Gould shares his story in a bid to inspire others. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. The United Nations Cultural Agency, UNESCO, has voted to condemn Israel's sovereignty in Jerusalem. The agency passed a resolution called Occupied Palestine by a vote of 22 to 10, with 26 countries abstaining. Submitted by Algeria, Egypt, Lebanon, Morocco, Oman, Qatar and Sudan, it called on Israel to rescind any legislative and administrative measures and actions it's taken to alter the character and status of Jerusalem and also sharply criticise construction in the eastern part of the old city. Staying with Jerusalem, history has been made as the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Chief Rabbi made the first ever joint visit by religious leaders in their positions to the city. Justin Welby, who was accompanied by his wife, had crossed the border into Israel from Jordan as part of a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. He and Ephraim Mervis are old friends. For this special visit, they met at the old city's Jaffa Gate and then strolled towards the Jewish quarter. They prayed together at the Western Wall and visited Yad Vashem. Israel's Arabs take a more positive view of the current state of the country than its Jewish citizens. In a poll published on the eve of the 69th anniversary of Israel's independence, 66% of Arabs rated the situation of the country as either good or very good, which compared with 44% of Israeli Jews. However, 86% of the Jews questioned said they were proud to be Israeli, compared to 51% of the Arabs. In Chicago, a Jewish couple who'd been married for almost 70 years died just moments apart in the same hospital room while holding hands. Teresa Vatkin, who was 89, died first, and 40 minutes later her husband Isaac, who was 91, passed away. The couple met in Argentina in the 1940s, but eventually moved to America and settled in Illinois, where they had three children. And finally, the actress Miriam Margulies appeared on ITV's This Morning programme eating a large ice cream. During her interview with the host, she bemoaned the fact that she needed to lose weight, as she looked like, in her words, a bucket. She also revealed she wanted to get a part in the BBC's Call the Midwife series. And she said she wanted to go to Palestine to try and do some good among the people, saying as a Jew, she felt guilty about what was going on there. That's the news this week. Over to the sport. Here's Andrew. Thank you, Viv. London Lions secured an historic League and Cup treble on Monday after they added the Albury Cup to their Hart Senior League Premier Division title and Hart Senior Trophy wins. Manager Andy Landsberg described their three wins as a very special achievement. In Israel, Hapa El Besheba claimed a second consecutive Premier League title. Beating Maccabi Tel Aviv 2-1 to go 11 points clear at the top of the table with only three games left to play, manager Barak Bakar said, We knew it would be a lot more difficult than last season. It's going to be even more difficult next year. And finally, Israel's national quad wheelchair tennis team have booked their place in the semi-finals of the World Tennis Cup in Sardinia. Led by 2012 London Paralympic gold medalist Noam Gashoni, they reached the last four with a game to spare, having beaten hosts Italy and the US. Remember, 
you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sport at jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let us start off, as we always do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me to go through it is editor Richard Ferrer and news editor Justin Cohen. Welcome to you both. Let us start off with the front page. And it's not really going to be a great surprise to learn that the general election is probably going to feature quite a bit over the coming weeks. And what are we saying about it on the front page this week, Justin? Yeah, we're days away now from confirmation in every seat of all the candidates standing on the 8th of June. And there's a bit of extra interest now, I would say, in the heartland areas of the Jewish community because of the decision of Jeremy Newmark, the chair of the Jewish Labour Movement, and his vice chair, Mike Katz, to stand in the two most Jewish constituencies in London. Those are Hendon and Finchley and Golders Green, up against, in the case of Finchley, Mike Freer, obviously a very big friend of the community. And for that reason, some people are questioning whether or not he, sh- whether or not Jeremy should have decided to stand at all against someone who is such a great friend of the community, in fact, one of the community's best friends in Parliament. Could it be that he is trying to do what the Jewish Labour movement have been trying to do for what seems like quite a long time now, and that is almost reassure the Jewish community that those who would like to can put their trust in the Labour Party and therefore by him actually standing as a candidate, that might demonstrate it in the strongest possible terms? That's a very good point. I mean, it's clear that over the last 12 months or so, the Labour Party has done irreparable damage when it comes to its relationship with the Jewish community. How do you build that? Well, clearly, you choose someone in a very, very heavily Jewish constituency to make the Labour case for the party to those voters. So I can understand the the rationale behind it. But what I think I found very surprising is that if you're going to put that position forward, if you're going to work on that platform, potentially it might be a little bit more advisable to go to a constituency where anti-Semitism is potentially an issue or the Jewish point of view isn't carried across quite as loudly and proudly as it should. Mike Freer is is one of the biggest advocates of the community. He beat Sarah Sackman two years ago, another Jewish Labour member who stood against him. So he's somebody who's an advocate for and and a great person who's seen as as somebody who's very, very close to the community. So to take him on, it's a brave move. And as we've said on page two, the gloves are are surely off. And if Mike Freer uh, is beaten by uh, Jeremy, I think it will surprise many people and and probably upset and disappoint people too. I think it's also worth pointing out, we've spoken this week to a number of people who who hold both views, who think that it was right for him to stand and those that, that don't. One particularly interesting point of view, I thought, was from John Mendelssohn, the former Labour fundraiser who is currently a Labour peer. He put forward the suggestion that actually this means that there's it's a win-win really, that there's no bad conclusion here. If Jeremy wins as someone who's been at the forefront of fighting anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, you know, the community know it's got a friend. And if Mike wins, uh, and again, another proven friend within the parliamentary circles. So, The message it would send out, I mean, I'm not a betting man and I certainly wouldn't bet on Jeremy Newmark to topple Mike Freer, but the message it would send out to Corbyn's Labour Party if they were to get in in, 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 the, in the number one Jewish constituency it would be a remarkable outcome for him and it would be a, a bellwether, I imagine, for a successful campaign for the Labour Party. That's how extraordinary this would be. So, you know, in his heart of hearts, I think Jeremy would, would, would not expect to win. But the outcome on June the 8th will certainly be fascinating. 
Certainly will. And of course, June the 8th will tell us whether or not that is a success for Jeremy Newmark or not, or indeed for Mike Freer. But that's the Labour and Conservative perspective on the whole matter. Now let's take a look from a Liberal Democrat point of view. And Justin, I understand that you've been speaking to the leader, Tim Farron. Yeah, I, I hope this will be the first of three uh, leaders' interviews during the course of the campaign, but we'll we'll see if the others decide to go into the lion's den, if you like, or in particular, obviously, Jeremy Corbyn. But Tim well, they've Farron, avoided the TV debate, so who knows, maybe. Well, yes, indeed. I think I think Theresa May might find a, more of a friendly audience, perhaps, in, in the Jewish community, perhaps more so than, than Jeremy Corbyn. Although I have to say to him, if, if, if his people are listening, I think it's important that, that the leader gets his views across during his term. And, and if he didn't do an interview, interview with the Jewish media during his time as leader of the opposition, he would be the first. Justin's been person. chasing Jeremy Corbyn for about oh, seven years now to get an interview. So he's just <laughs> hoping that the election is finally reason enough for him to speak to him. So. Exactly. Well, the chase may soon be over, but it certainly is over for Tim Farron in the sense that you don't have to chase him anymore because you have been speaking to yes, him. Yes, I, I apologise for, for moving. Yeah, get to the of point, course, Justin. Uh, yeah, Tim, Tim Farron actually had a launch of his ca- campaign within the BME, members of the BME community in Westminster the synagogue on Tuesday night and had an opportunity to speak to him after that. It was a very interesting conversation. I thought just kind of seven or eight minutes with him. But it's very clear that the language that Tim Farron, as a leader of the Liberal Democrats, is ready to use when it comes to Israel, the warmth he is ready to show is a step up from anything we've heard in recent times. In particular, a quote from him about holding Israel dear as friends. I mean, that's pretty strong way of putting things and he also revealed that he was actually supposed to have visited Israel his first official visit as leader during the course of this campaign in fact he was due to have been in Israel on polling day but he apologized um, for having to, to cancel that obviously and hopes that he'll be able to visit later in the year and the interview covered a whole range of issues from his own faith which has been in the news in recent times to protection of religious rights and faith schools as I said Israel and of course David Ward's and the fight against anti-semitism Listening back to Justin's interview, it was fascinating and Farron did come across particularly well, particularly on the David Ward issue. He was very swift to act. But the one thing that disappointed and saddened me slightly is Justin asked him a direct question. Are you a Zionist? Do you describe yourself as a Zionist? And I think he said something like, I'll sidestep that one, but I believe in a homeland for the Jewish people. The baggage the word Zionist seems to have, its connotations, should not be so heavy. And, and, and the repercussions of saying you are a Zionist, Ed Miliband said he was a Zionist and then retracted at one of our events a few years ago and obviously Tim Farron has, has learnt that seen that and, and decided not to make the same mistake but it's not a mistake you know it's, you're a Zionist if you believe in a state for, for, the, for the Jewish people Tim Farron does he's a Zionist Richard, I fear that you may be opening a completely new debate and a whole new can of worms, unfortunately, in this pay-per-view we don't have time for. But what we will do is move on just slightly because we want to squeeze in a couple more stories here. And there is a, that, by the way, that interview can be found on page three of the Jewish News with Tim Farron. But there is a new stance being taken on tackling intolerance. What's this about? Yeah, uh, we've teamed up with Faith Matters, Fires Mughal's uh, organisation, Muslim interfaith organisation, who of course set up the Tell Mama organisation based in part on the amazing work and inspired by the amazing work of the CST. They've joined forces with a number of other organisations tackling hate crime to form the first national hate crime awards. And this So you're going to award hate crimes? Luckily not, no. We, we decided to, to sidestep that, that particular We challenge. thought about it. Yeah. <laughs> 
But yeah. Just to clarify, yeah. just in case anyone's listening, saying pardon. I don't know. Yeah. I've done that joke a few times this week. It's it's, it's slightly wearing thin, I think, at, at this point. But uh, that's the first time I've heard it. Exactly. Exactly. No. So we're going to be honouring those both individuals and organisations that are at the forefront of tackling hate crime, and this can be not just anti-Semitism, but Islamophobia, transphobia, homophobia, any type of hate crime. And I think, obviously, being a Jewish newspaper and helping to take the lead on this. And being involved in now the second year of this initiative, it's grown hugely. It's going to culminate in a big dinner in central London, and it's a it's a great you know it's a great opportunity for us. It's a, it's a great thing for us to be able to shine a light on these amazing people. Yeah, the famous line: "All it takes for evil to triumph is for good good people to do nothing." This is about making it's sure that good people do something so you can nominate anyone that you feel has set an example and stood up against bigotry and intolerance. You can make a nomination at hatecrimeawards.org and the award ceremony will be later in the year. Terrific. We look forward to that. Now, really, really quickly, we've got 30 seconds, but we're going to learn more about this later in the programme, so it's fine. What is this about Mark and David Adom benefiting from an ambulance with thanks to Jewish newsreaders? Well, not just Jewish newsreaders, but also the members of Cockfosters and New Southgate Synagogue. Back in 2010, we joined up with the synagogue and together we raised enough money for a Mug and David Adom ambulance. And this week, Israel's 69th birthday, we found out that it has just answered its 10,000th emergency call. Very gratifying, lovely number. We're really pleased and proud that we've managed to just do our tiny little bit to help the people of Israel really underlines the, the profound and enduring link between the diaspora and the Jewish state. Fantastic. Well, we will find out more about that, as I say, later in the show when we speak to Daniel Berger from Mog and David Adon. But thank you both very much indeed. Don't forget that you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. Now, as you just heard, this week Israel celebrated its 69th Yom Ha'atzma'ut, or Independence Day, despite United Nations body UNESCO questioning sovereignty in Jerusalem on the very same day. But what does it mean to British Jews? Well, to find out, I've been speaking to Paul Charney, the chairman of the Zionist Federation. I started by asking Paul to remind us exactly what Yom Ha'atzma'ut is all about. Yom Ha'atzma'ut is the celebration of the independence of Israel being declared in May 1948. We celebrate on or around nearest to the 5th of Iyar every year the annual independence that was declared by Ben-Gurion on the back of the UN vote. In 1948, Yom Ha'atzmaut is a celebration which brings not just all the Israelis together, but Jews all around the world to celebrate the pivotal moment. It's interesting you say about Jews around the world, because I think I've been kind of aware that this year feels to me, and I don't know whether or not I've just been mixing in the wrong circles, which is distinctly possible, but I feel as if this year British Jews haven't made quite the same fuss about Yom Ha'atzmaut as they have done in the past. Am I imagining that? Is that true? Or is that just not the case? That could certainly be true. This year is an anomaly because this year is the 69th year of independence of the State of Israel. We at the ZF will continue to celebrate as normal, but we have found that people are readying themselves for the big 70th year, where hopefully we won't be retiring, but we will be reaching for greater heights that Israel will be looking forward to the future, Ad Meir Israel and beyond. So I think there is an element of where 69 as a date, as a number, 
has certain significance, 70th is even more significant, and the entire community are coming together to prepare for that. I see. So people are preserving themselves yeah. for the big seven yes. zero. And what have ZF got planned for that? Because I'm, I'm imagining that you've got one or two tricks up your sleeve. We are talking to all the major organizations in the community. We will look to do a community-wide Yom Ha'atzma'ut celebration. That will include the major organizations, JLC and the Board of Deputies and other organizations. We here in the UK have to make a special effort to celebrate Yom Ha'atzma'ut because we are not in Israel. If you were in Israel, you're automatically swept up in the party and the celebration of it. Whereas in the UK, we have to make that effort to celebrate not just the independence of Israel, but the collectiveness of the Jewish community coming together. And of course, that that pivotal moment. It is also for some a religious day. Some feel that when Jews come together to declare either a nation or a group back in an entity back in the original homeland of Israel, some religious Jews will say additional prayers on Yom Ha'atzmaut. So there is huge significance across the board. I have to ask, why do you say that we have to celebrate it here in the UK? Because I don't mean to be rude in exactly the same way that the Independence Day of America doesn't mean a great deal to us here in the UK. Why should Israel's Independence Day mean anything? So that's a good question. I think as a Jew, you want to feel part of the collective of the Jewish nation. And there is no greater way than the declaration of a Jewish nation, the state of Israel, on the day of independence. There's no greater day to celebrate that collectivity. For me, it's an opportunity for us to come together, not just as a nation, but as a community here in the UK, on a very special day. We don't have many days in the calendar we can do that. There are religious days, and there are Jews which are religious and not religious, who, who do not necessarily feel that that for them is, is anything special. But I think with Israel, everybody can agree that there is something for everybody on that day to feel part of the group. But of course, we need to look at the other end of the spectrum because you say there's something for everybody. There were some news articles that read the most horrific things where you see some of the ultra-Orthodox community in Jerusalem, no less, using Yom Ha'atzmaut to burn Israeli flags. So apart from the obvious question, why on earth are they living there if they detest it that much? But of course, we mustn't forget, though, that these sorts of things do occur on Yom Ha'atzmaut. And therein lies the engagement with even those that don't agree with Israel. For them to see it as a significant day as well is certainly a a very strong Jewish trait. I strongly agree with the day and I strongly disagree with the day. How much more can we come together as a community with that alone? Paul Charney, chairman of the Zionist Federation, talking to me there about Yom Ha'atzma'ut and how it's marked by British Jews. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Tony will be joined by community volunteer Andy Lucas and Ahuva Cohen from the New End Theatre Beyond. They'll be discussing what you've just been hearing about, what Yom Ha'atzma'ut means to diaspora Jews. Plus, community editor Diana Toman talks to David Gould about stem cell donation. But first... Have you ever experienced relationship problems? Well, that's exactly what author Julian Furman explores in his new novel. 
This is How We Talk is set in Tel Aviv and follows the struggles of Leah and Yonatan, a young couple trying to save their relationship for the sake of their child. To find out more, arts editor Kate Fulton has been speaking to Julian. She started by asking him to tell us what did he do before he became an author. I, I've had quite a few day jobs to date. I moved to Israel when I got offered a job at the parliament there, which was in 2004, and I got stuck there for a very long time, hence why the book is about Tel Aviv. And therefore you know a bit about politics. If a you little bit, yes. I did a master's Machinations of government. That. Exactly, ah, right. machinations of government. And after that I worked for a while at the BBC in London at uh, Current Affairs, so in television. And most recently I've been writing. And what story did you want to tell? I mean, obviously you're going to tell us a bit about your book, but yeah. but what was the inspiration? What was the spark? And you thought, you know what, I'm going to write about it. Two parts, actually. The first one was that my daughter had just been born, my first daughter. Uh, my wife and I were living in Tel Aviv. And I don't think that the story of new fathers is something that has really been explored particularly deeply. So that was something that I wanted to get across because as it was almost a, a crisis of self that I felt that I needed to work through. On the other hand, this was an incredibly traumatic time in Tel Aviv, and my wife and I and our new daughter were living in the center of the city. We just experienced the cost of living social protests where one in every 16 people in Israel came to the streets of Tel Aviv. They'd spluttered and only hardcore were kind of continuing to, to demonstrate the effects on the city were quite profound. You had a lot of social instability and turmoil. At the same time, you had the lesser of the Gaza wars with rockets being fired at the city, an explosion on Shalom Boulevard at the city centre. And everything seemed... Unstable. It seemed unstable, but it also felt as if it wasn't being covered in a way that really represented how the city was dealing with it and how people were living their lives to the backdrop of this incredible uncertainty that was continuing day in, day out. OK, so this led to your the debut novel, your, your book. Correct. Which is sitting in front of me and looks very interesting, actually. This is how we talk. But it's a work of fiction. It is, yes. So you just use the other stuff as backdrop, the social instability and the, and the political shenanigans. And tell us a little bit about where it took you. Where did the fiction then take you? It was the attempt to create a portrait of young people and their lives in Tel Aviv at this moment to the backdrop of, of what was going on. So you have... Tel Aviv is, is an incredible, vibrant, hedonistic, dense, active, wonderful city. It's a young person city. It is say. very much a young person city. and But it also is not immune to a lot of other problems that are hitting, you know, crises that are hitting other major cities internationally. So you've got cost of living issues. Um, you've got space issues. You have intergenerational conflicts that are rearing their heads the entire time. Cash-strapped governments and, you know, the constant threat of terrorism and war and a cultural civil war that is being fought, basically, in the press and 
on the streets continuously. And that cultural civil war is not existent, for example, in Jerusalem. Is that a different type of struggle? I don't know Jerusalem as a city. I, I feel like I know Tel Aviv kind of in a granular way, having having lived there as I did. But it's Tel Aviv is very young, as you said. It's very liberal. It tends to the center of the city tends to attract a very specific person, who over the past ten years or so, but very actively over the past five years, have been recast as almost unpatriotic recently even kind of enemies of the state and how this bubble interacts with the rest of the country and also the the kind of political entity around it was something that really really fascinated me also because the people that make this up are individuals you know they have yeah. lives and you're individuals loves. well exactly so you, you but your couple are struggling between themselves as they well they are they're struggling between themselves with you know the personal issues that that every family deals with and, and especially on, when there's a newborn and on the newborn so the the book actually kicks off with this crisis of self of Jonathan who is the well the first narrator and the male protagonist basically finding himself unable to deal with all of the new responsibilities that are suddenly thrust onto him by being a new father and do you think it's a Jewish story? Is it a more of a tale of Israel or is it a tale of Jews or are the two indistinguishable? I, I think in Israel they're indistinguishable. I mean, you know, you have Judaism as a religion and you have Israel as culturally Jewish and Tel Aviv as kind of one type of a cultural Jewish city. So I, I don't think that you can separate the two. Do you feel that the city has changed much? I mean, what, what do you think are the, are the biggest changes? And are those reflected in your book too? Because the subtitle is interesting, A Novel of Tel Aviv. I thought that was quite interesting when I... It's all about us, but it's also about the city. Yes. And Tel Aviv, although it has a reputation as this party town and, and as something different from the rest of Israel, it isn't something that a lot of people understand or that gets a lot of specific airtime apart from, you know, top five list of the best beaches or, or, or the best restaurants. As far as changing is concerned, I mean, th there are two distinct narratives in the book that it kind of jumps backwards and forwards between, you know, from the 90s up until today. There's also a lot of ghosts that inhabit it because even though Tel Aviv is a new city, Jews are an old people. There's a lot of Zionism has a lot of hopes and dreams attached to it, which are completely inseparable from the fabric of the place. So all of the history is basically in every page because you, you just can't separate it. Some writers take themselves off to rooms and attics. And where do you find it best to actually do the process, to do the deed? I wrote this partly in Tel Aviv and partly in London. And one thing that unites both cities is that apartments are far too small for your needs. I started writing it and continued writing it on park benches and in coffee shops and when the weather was good in parks and on the beach. It's the only place that I could get away and clear my head enough to actually write. You didn't Not have post-it notes all over the place then that you needed to refer back to. Mental post-it notes, <laughs> yeah. 
Toby. And the book is out now, it's available. The book is launching on the 8th of May at 6.30pm in Waterstones, Hampstead. And go along and meet you, and get yeah, signed copies. Absolutely. I, I will be there with my pen in hand. And it will be available from all usual bookstores, delivery on the 11th. Julian Furman speaking to our arts editor Kate Fulton there about his novel, This Is How We Talk. For more information, you can visit our website, jewishviews.co.uk. In just a moment will be this week's Schmooze. Remember, we live stream the Schmooze on our Facebook page every Thursday evening from 7pm British Summertime. The address is coming up, but it means that you can comment along as the discussion unfolds. And of course, we'll try and read out some of those comments as and when we get them. It's just one of a number of ways that you can share your Jewish views with us. Speaking of which, if you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. And of course, those details can be found on our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Now, an ambulance that was donated to Magen David Adom with thanks to a British fundraising campaign has answered its 10,000th call-out. It was back in 2010 that the Jewish news readers, along with members of Cockfosters and North Southgate Synagogue, raised the money and MDA has been reaping the benefits. To find out more about this, I've been speaking a few weeks ago to the chief executive of Magen David Adom UK, Daniel Berger. I mentioned it was a few weeks ago because the episode this interview was supposed to go out on and indeed feature in the paper was when the terrorist attack happened at Westminster. So please do excuse any outdated references you may hear. All the same, I started by asking Daniel to remind us exactly what the fundraising campaign was all about. The campaign was combined with Cockfosters and North Southgate Shul and the aim was to raise money for an ambulance from the community. Uh, we know that... Magen David Adom's unique selling point is that it's tangible. Everything we see, everything one buys is literally there. You can buy an ambulance, you can buy a bike, you can even spend 50 quid and buy medical consumables. And there was the thought process of combining with Cockfosters and getting the Jewish news readers behind their names and being able to put an ambulance on the road in Israel. And I'm delighted they were able to achieve it. Can you tell us a little bit about the impact that that has had? What kind of difference are we looking at in terms of that ambulance? Because one would assume the money was raised, an ambulance has been provided, and what difference are we looking at? The bottom line is saving lives. The vehicle was put on the road in May 2010, and it's in the Sharon region, which is in the Netanya area. So it's a busy region. And I'm really thrilled that this vehicle, thrilled, depending on which way you want to look at it, has been out on nearly 11,000 calls in that time. And that's a huge amount for an MDA ambulance. It's one of the greater than average amounts. And when I look down the statistics, I can see that 106 women were in labor and some of those babies would have been born in the ambulance. So as much as they're saving lives, they're bringing lives into the world and they should be proud in the community they've done this. Can we just get a little bit of an understanding of sort of how important it would have been? What kind of situations would we have been facing had this ambulance not been provided? Are we saying that there wouldn't have been an ambulance to cover these incidents as opposed to this just happens to be the instance that this ambulance has covered? Do you see what I mean? It's a bit of both. I mean, each ambulance is necessary. MDA has a fleet of a thousand vehicles. Some would say this is a country smaller than Wales. A thousand ambulances sounds a lot. 
but it needs them because it's a unique country. We all know about its borders and its enemies and sadly the terror attacks. And as a result, MDA's ambulances are far greater use than, say, some of the other services. If you look at the population of London, it's about the same as the population of Israel and they're running less ambulances. So it's not that someone's life wouldn't be saved, but every additional ambulance on the road just means it can get there that little bit quicker. And those first seven minutes are the vital minutes in getting to a patient. And also, what about the relevance of having a base here in the UK? Because obviously we know that MDA ambulances are all over Israel, but what's the actual purpose of having a UK division? Simply to raise funds. MDA could operate its ambulance service. It could buy the consumables. It could run an average ambulance service without the support of the diaspora. But we always like to see ourselves with our peers around the world as the icing and the cherry on the cake. The capital items, the bikes, the vehicles, such as this ambulance and the ambulance stations that we build are what make a difference because Israel cannot sustain that itself. And this has obviously come at quite a timely moment because it's been announced that MDA are to join forces with other emergency services in Israel. Yeah, that's right. And I can only see that as a positive. There's two other organisations doing great work, both Zaka and United Hatzalah. And Hatzalah really paved the way for medical first responders, motorcycle first responders. And MDA has also gone down that route now, having several hundred bikes on the road, of which the UK donors have paid a huge amount towards. The bottom line is this will only help save lives. Oh, how fantastic is that? Daniel Berger, the chief executive of Magen David Adom UK, talking to me there about the way the organisation has benefited from an ambulance purchased with thanks to Jewish newsreaders and Cockfosters and North Southgate Synagogue. Now, from one life-saving story to another, the topic of stem cell donation. In recent months, we've heard the appeal stories of Sharon Berger and Sippy Howard. But what is it like from the other perspective? 24-year-old David Gould is raising awareness of his donation story in a bid to encourage others to be donors. Community editor Diana Toman has been speaking to David and she started by asking him to tell her how he went about the whole process. I originally signed up for the Anti-Nolan Trust in my first year of university. I was at the University of Leeds and it was a joint event between the University Jewish Society and the Anti-Nolan Trust, um, Leeds Marrow, um, at the time. So I was at the Leeds University Hillel building. The JSOC were very keen on everyone signing up because there was a boy, Alex Samuels, a couple of years older than me, who um, had recently been diagnosed with a type of blood cancer. So I signed up as part of that big drive. In the end, it turned out that my friend Alex was able to have his own stem cells transplanted back into him. It was actually only this week that I think he received the total all clear that his consultants didn't want to see him again, which is obviously very, very good news. So myself and quite a lot of my friends signed up to the Anti-Nolan Trust as part of this drive. I then, to be honest, completely forgot about it for about, well, five and a half years. Really? As long as that? You put it to the back of your mind, as it were? Just totally forgot about it. Right. And then I was on a lunch break from work. I went for a walk. I was out. I remember I was stood outside Buckingham Palace and I checked my phone. I had a text that read something along the lines of, Urgent, Anthony Nolan, we think you might be a match for someone. Please give us a call. So obviously saying that, I felt I had uh, very little choice. I had to with my inquisitive mind, call back. So I did, and then I was told that there's someone that's come up on their database that could be a match for me. 
So we've got you as far as a hospital bed. Would that be correct? No, no, not Nothing at this point. Nothing like that at all. No. no. It's all very, very relaxed. So I received the uh, text, called them back, and they asked me to go down and give them some blood samples so they can confirm the match. So the next morning I went down to the main offices, let them take a little bit of blood. I asked them then, what are the chances of me actually being a match? And they said, well, it's probably about one in four. So once again, I pretty much forgot about it for a few weeks, kind of told my parents about it. But other than that, like, not such a big deal. Maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. A few weeks after that, probably about five, six weeks later, I got a letter through the post confirming that I was the best match for this patient. And that was shortly followed by a phone call to tell me that his doctors would like me to go ahead. So I rather jumped the gun by getting you into a hospital bed that quickly. What happened then? Once I'd been told that I, I was definitely a match for the patient, they explained to me very thoroughly what that would involve. So there are two main ways of giving stem cells. There's one that's a, a more of a bone marrow way, which is more intrusive. And there's the way that I was very fortunate that my patient's medical team preferred. So, David, tell us exactly what the procedure is. It's a fairly straightforward procedure, to be honest. It sounds like a lot more and a lot scarier than it really was. All it was, was for four days before the, my actual um, donation date, I had two injections, one in each arm. These injections just make me create more stem cells. It has slight side effects, just makes your bones a little bit more achy as they create more stem cells. Then on the, the Monday, once I'd had all these injections, I went into the hospital for the day to give stem cells. I lay down on quite a comfortable bed. They put a needle in my left arm and a needle in my right arm. Blood left my body through my left arm, went into a big machine that, from my understanding, basically just centrifuges my blood. It has a nice bag that collects all the stem cells and a bit of plasma. And then my blood is returned back to me in my right arm. So it sounds a lot more scary than it is, but I was perfectly comfortable during it. I was eating, talking, I was even tweeting. That's amazing. You're, you're obviously a tremendously good advertisement for anyone else to join. To, presumably, that's the idea. They want to get as many people as possible. That's exactly why I've been quite keen to be public with it over the past couple of weeks. When I first did it, Anthony Nolan said to me um, that I had the option to, to go public with it. And they would encourage that because that would help, hopefully help encourage more people to join the register. From my point of view, going through what I've done and knowing that it really isn't particularly difficult, I know that I've given a patient who had very little chance of surviving now has uh, hopefully a 50% chance of surviving. It's still not fantastic odds, but it's a lot better than it was before. David Gould speaking to community editor Diana Toman there. If you would like more information about stem cell donation or indeed to sign up to the Anthony Nolan Trust, then visit our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. Joining Tony Honigberg and me today is community volunteer Andy Lucas and a Hoover Cohen from the New End Theatre Beyond. The subject today is based on the interview we heard with Paul Charney from the Zionist Federation earlier on. This week saw Israel celebrate the 69th Yom Ha'atzma'ut of Independence Day. 
The question is, what does it and should it mean to diaspora Jews? Is it something we should be celebrating? Andy, let's start with you. Do you think we should mark Israel's Independence Day any more than, say, America's Independence Day? Yes, because as Jews, it's our bolt hole, if you like, in case anything happens. Um, it will welcome us in and we have to, I suppose we have to admire what they've done over the 69 years that they have been official, if you like. And I just think it's a wonderful, wonderful country. And we need to mark though the fact that it's there for us. Now, Hoover, you obviously agree with that, do you? Of course, I agree with it. First of all, I'll declare I'm an Israeli and a British. So the establishment of the State of Israel is one of the biggest and most significant events in contemporary Jewish history. So, of course, it is part of all the consciousness of all the Jews worldwide, and we should definitely take part of it. If we are, as we do, the Jewish people are very quick to criticize what the government of Israel does, above all, we should celebrate what they do. But before we celebrate, you know, before your Matzmodis, your Mazikaron, and I think this is the most important part of these three days or these two days of marking the establishment of the State of Israel, all the Israeli soldiers that have fallen and been killed and are still missing in service, in action and in wars are remembered. And very sadly, we are nearly coming, we are over 24,000 young boys and women who have fallen in all the wars, in Israel wars, battles and actions. And before we celebrate, we should really remember and be with all the fathers, mothers, brothers and sisters and children of the fallen soldiers. I, I don't remember as a, a child, and, and I was born after, just after the establishment of the State of Israel, I don't remember as a child growing up that we ever celebrated Yom Ha'atzmaut in this country. So when did it first start that, that British Jews started to celebrate the anniversary of the State of Israel? You're actually I right. can't, I, I don't can't remember. Answer, I can't answer that either, but I do. I don't remember. I do know when it happened because I was a young schoolboy in those days. I, I do remember the actual day, and I remember sitting and listening to how all the different countries on the radio, all the different countries that had recognized Israel, and it was very exciting. But the fact still remains I'm not sure that it's right to celebrate a country which was, after all, Israel was supposed to be the home of the Jewish religion. But apart from a few ultra-religious people in Jerusalem, most of the Israelis I know couldn't be the slightest bit interested in the fact that the Jewish religion was created by the Almighty to teach the world how they should live. That's what the Jews are there for. But most Israelis are quite secular. Exactly. 
And I think that's wrong. This is not the state of the Jewish religious people. This is the state of the Jewish people. But the Jewish Jewish people look for their own country, which they deserve, particularly after what happened with the Second World War and all the 10 million people killed. It's 6 million Jews, but there were 10 million people killed. But the fact still remains that once they started their own home, there should have been more recognition of the fact that they were not just Israelis, they were Jews. I think they do recognise that because, you know, there's a lot of research and a lot of things that are going on in Israel, archaeology digs and all sorts of things going back. And they are trying to find all things that have happened. But but they recognise themselves as... Jews but, as yes. a whole, but not as religious. But not Jews. religious. Yeah. Yes. You know, and that's, well, that's fine. fine. So that's if, fine. if they recognize themselves as Jews, but not as religious Jews, then there, there's no reason for us, who are probably more religious than they are, to celebrate that particular day. Well, look, we are in a lot of services in synagogues. I'm not a synagogue goer, but I know the odd times that I've been they do on in occasions they sing Hatikva. And what is Hatikva? This is our national anthem. This is the national anthem of the State of Israel, which has been adopted as a way of identifying and being one with the state of Israel. When, when you go to a function in this country, we always do a, a l'chaim, if you like, to the state of Israel, and we sing the Hatikva. Yes, but so, when, you, when you go to synagogue on Shabbat... And they do a prayer. They, they do, do a prayer, prayer but they Israel. also say a prayer for the Queen, queen. Uh, etc. And... We owe our allegiance to the United Kingdom. And if you go to if you go to America and go to school in America, they say a prayer to the American state, the uh, mm. USA, well, exactly. and, this and the state of Israel. So, so they do the same. Yes, but we don't make we don't, for example, make. And I, actually, I think America is more Jewish than Israel in many ways. We don't make a prayer about America. On no, but then. We didn't go to America to be saved, whereas Israel was formed out of everything to, you know, although it was there before and the Jews were there for many, many eons before that. America was started by the Pilgrim Fathers and who left this country because of religious persecution. Yeah, but that's not the Jewish people who have got their own Jewish state. The fact is that as Jews, we have our own Jewish state. And if anybody wants to come and try and do another Holocaust, for instance, we could all go there. God forbid, exactly. But we could all go there and we would be absorbed as they have absorbed all sorts of other people. They've absorbed people from Ethiopia. They've absorbed people from Africa, all sorts of different places. They will absorb anybody as long as they are Jewish. You know, lots of Russians have gone there, some of whom are not necessarily ethnic Jewish. But, you know... It I, absorbs curi- people, I'm and I, I just think that should be celebrated. I'm, I'm curious to know, this is, is slightly going off the subject, just fractionally and only for a brief second. Pakistan, which is another country that was also made independent in 1940, I think, 49. I don't 49, think 49, yes. 49, so it's a, a year younger than Israel. Do the Pakistani population of the UK who are British, do they celebrate Pakistan Independence Day, I wonder? I think they probably do because 
particularly the Muslims, they, they celebrate all Muslim celebrations and the fact that Pakistan was created for Muslims, as a Muslim state. As a Muslim state, they would celebrate that. So, so then should we, on that side of it, then should we as Jews celebrate the Independence Day of the State of Israel? I don't know. Americans here celebrate the Independence Day. It is a way of identifying with the country. I'm really surprised that such a question was posed because in all matters, the Jewish population worldwide, what we call the diaspora, looks to Israel. And we celebrate scientific achievements, the medical achievements, the educational achievement. We celebrate the winnings of wars, the unification of Jerusalem. It's, it's such a partner of the cycle, whether we like it or not and so on, and who did it, and who established the, the, the state of Israel. These were secular boys and girls who left religious homes because of their socialist views and established the state of Israel, the kibbutzim, they were part of the Palmach and the Lechin and the Etzel and all these these, these people. There weren't any that was religious... That's where it started. Yes, but absolutely. Now, but now Israel is a very right-wing country. It's got a right-wing government. Government, mm. yeah, but, government it, but it doesn't mean to say we've got anti-Zionists, the very uh, right-wing people, we've got religious Zionists, we've got all the Reign of the rainbow. Out of curiosity, do the, when you're in Israel, do the anti-Zionists celebrate Israel's Independence Day? Because they're anti-Zionist. No, the ultra-religious people yeah. do not, not celebrate. celebrate. And they do not, because I mentioned before the uh, Yom HaZikaron, the Memorial Day for the Fallen Soldiers, the day before, and everybody, there is a siren. Has anybody mm-hmm. been to Israel yes, before? There is a siren. Yeah. And everybody stops. just stops still. You get out of the car and you stand... They don't out of, honor these. The, the, the ultra-religious don't stop. They the don't. Out, the they ultra-religious don't. don't because they believe that there cannot be... It, I'm it's only repeating what I've, what I've read. But the ultra-religious believe that there can't be in Israel until the Messiah comes. Well, that's their, that's their views. But the rest of the people in Israel, the rest of the population of Israel, I think there's probably more of the secular and the normal religious type of people. At the moment, yeah, at the moment there is, but that's yes. growing, isn't it? Yeah. Well, yeah. it may be, but, you know, I think because they outnumber them, you know, that's why they do it. And I think to, you know, when you see mm. on the television everybody standing still for two minutes or a minute or whatever it is at Yom HaZikron, I think it is the most fantastic sight. And I would love to be there for that and for Yom HaZikron. I don't disagree with you at all. All I'm trying to say is that... As, as outsiders. As an yes. outsider living yes, in England. We, should we, yeah. Is it the same thing? But it's not a must. It is a privilege, I think. <laughs> it's not an obligation. It's a privilege, in my view, for Jewish people to rejoice in the establishment of the state of Israel. And you mentioned it's not a good thing to look at the state of Israel from negative points of view, that this will be our home in case of catastrophes. But it is, 
you know, it's like an insurance policy. You know, if something happens, we dash there. But it should be supported as a lot of organization, uh, charity organization support it with donations to see that Magenda Vida Dome and other things and WITSO do fantastic mm. things there, uh, social and welfare. And as part of this, this is part of the deal, I think. We do get, we celebrate. We, we do have um, Irish expats celebrating St. Patrick's Day. And we have we don't celebrate St. George's Day in England, though. Which uh, I think is which wrong. Which we should be doing. I think it's wrong. Although St. Right. George is a Russian. Well, St. Patrick was Welsh, so yes. So <laughs> that's another story. We can. Have, that's another discussion. I think. Yes. Yes. I have celebrated Yom Haatzmaut, and it's actually a nice celebration because everybody's bouncing, everybody's happy, and everything else. It's a nice party. But I'm, not, I'm still not sure as diaspora Jew, which is a, a term I actually hate, whether I should need to celebrate it or not. And I don't celebrate every year. I don't go to things every year. It's just on the odd occasion that I may be around. Well, that's all I'm really time. trying to say. I don't think it should be held up as something that every mm. Jew should celebrate. It's not an obligatory thing. People want to do it. I went this year to Hendon, you know, before the merger. They, they Hendon decided... isn't in Israel. No, no, no. Hendon Reform Shul, where we celebrated Yom Haatzmaut. And it was really good because Rabbi Stephen Katz did a couple of prayers. We did Kaddish. We had music. And it was very nice. And then we went into the other room and we had Israeli food. Oh, well, that's a nice way to end the discussion. Exactly. Thank you all very much. My thanks to our guest community volunteer, Andy Lucas and Hoover Cohen from the New End Theatre Beyond. And it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence of Kinloss United Synagogue. Parashat Kadoshim contains many of the key principles of ethical Judaism. The word Kadosh means holy. Kadoshim Tihiyu, we're told, we must become holy. Judaism does not hold that we are inherently sinful, defective or flawed, so that sanctity is elusive. On the contrary, we can be, and we are charged to be holy. The commentators explain Kadoshim Tihiyu as Perushim Tihiyu, be separate. However, this is not a separation from society. Jewish holiness is not monastic living or a hermit's existence on a remote mountain. It is a separation from excess. It is about balancing our spiritual and physical pleasures. We recite Kiddush on Shabbat and festivals. It is the sanctification of the holy time or holy season over wine. As we proclaim the day spiritually different, we drink alcohol. When consumed in excess, Wine has the capacity to remove our inhibitions, have us behave recklessly and even inappropriately. Liquor can be the gateway to debasement and debauchery. And so one might think that it ought to be the last thing in the world that is used for a proclamation of sanctity. However, our proclamations of distinction between the holy and profane are made over wine. Holiness is about setting limits in our life, knowing how to enjoy and knowing when to stop. Kiddushin is the betrothal, engagement ceremony, the sanctification of a relationship. It is blessed over wine and transacted with the presentation of a ring under the chuppah. The blessing describes the separation and elevation of marriage. It is not just about cohabitation and procreation, companionship and sex. We proclaim marriage as a holy institution. It is purposeful and spiritual. As with the booze, there is much room for excess and overindulgence in sex and relationships. We must strike a balance between permitted and pleasure, which is identified as holy, 
and philandering and promiscuity, which is not. Two of our key prayers, which must be recited with a minyan, emphasizing holiness within the community, also contain the Kadosh root. Kaddish is the prayer we say when broken with grief in the commemoration of a loved one. It is not a prayer of tears nor heart-rending sorrow. The words are a prayer of celebration and magnification of God's name. When we are most acutely aware of our frailty, and sometimes angry, hurt, or desperate, Kaddish focuses our words and hopefully channels some of our emotions to the service of God, and with the Ose Shalom bin Ramav, to the betterment and peace of our daily lives. The second Kadosh prayer is the Kedusha. This is the responsive passage and the repetition of the Amida. It is considered one of the most reverential parts of the Shul service. The Kedusha is us reenacting conversations between God and the angels, using verses from the prophetic visions of Isaiah and Ezekiel. While much of our prayer emphasizes the chasm between God, infinite and omnipotent, and humanity, finite, flawed, and mortal, in the Kedusha, we are engaged to assume the identity of perfect and spiritual beings. Whoever we might be almost every moment of almost every day, in the Kedusha, we are uplifted and should see ourselves as pure, as pristine, and able to talk directly with God as we stand in his presence. When we recite the Kedusha, we are with the angels. We break through the glass ceiling that normally separates the terrestrial from the celestial. Though the word kadosh implies elevation and separation, its context is always engagement and connection rather than aloof alienation. Kadoshim Tihiyu commands God, fulfill our potential to raise up and perfect our communities, to conduct ourselves with honesty, integrity, and with compassion. Holiness isn't just about our synagogues and our services and our relationships with our God. It is about our dining rooms and our bedrooms, our boardrooms and the people we encounter every moment of every day. May we all rise to the elevated challenge. Hmm. I don't know if I know what holiness means to me. I'd be lying if I said I thought about it on a daily basis. But I certainly take part in what I believe to be holy rituals to ensure that I never stray too far from it. Such as, say, going to shul or even more recently observing Pesach. I'll give it some more thought, though. Thank you very much to Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence from Kinloss United Synagogue with our Thought for the Week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Chairman of the Zionist Federation, Paul Charney, novelist Julian Furman, remember his book, This Is How We Talk, stem cell donor David Gould. If you'd like to sign up to the Anthony Nolan Trust, then do look at our website. Also to Daniel Berger from Mogan David Adom. And thanks to our other contributors, and of course to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers, Adam Bradley, Sue Greenberg and Tony Honickberg. You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you'll also find the link to listen to all previous episodes as well. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.